Hello, everyone, and thanks for being with us this afternoon. Um, I am Emily Mitchell-Field. I am an Assistant Attorney General in the Environmental Protection Division at the Mass AG's office, and myself, along with Shane Settlesing, are the new lawyers co-chairs within the Environmental and Energy Law Committee here at the BBA, and we are excited for all of our panelists to be with us today to talk about working with environmental consultants and technical experts. So we have three amazing panelists. We have Ali Wingerder from, oh, sorry, Ali, Ali Wingerder <laughs> from Fitch Law Partners and Bruce Hopper, who's a deputy general counsel slash litigation manager at Mass DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, and Liz Stanton, director and senior economist at Applied Economics Clinic. So our three panelists are going to take just a little bit of time to explain their roles and their position and a little bit of their background in working with lawyers or with consultants. So Ali, do you want to start? Sure, yes. Uh, so like Emily said, my name is Ali Wingeter and I'm an associate attorney at Fitch Law Partners. Um, I've been in private practice for almost four years. Uh, I had two years of clerking and um, I have a joint degree from Vermont Law School and the Yale School of Forestry. Um, I have worked with technical consultants um, on a variety of uh, matters, primarily 21E, but uh, others as well. And I'm, I'm kicking it off to Bruce. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I'm the litigation manager at MassTEP. So obviously deal with a lot of financial analysts and experts. Uh, prior to that, I was over at the uh, Division of Professional Licensure, and I was a chief presiding officer over there. So uh, a lot of different technical experts testifying in a lot of different hearings. Prior to that, I was in private practice, my own firm, for roughly 20 years and dealt with technical experts and fire crash analysts, forensic psychologists, DNA, ballistics, um, breathalyzer, medical doctors in different areas. So um, a lot of experience uh, with experts, technical experts in a lot of different areas. And now I'll pass it over to Liz. Thanks. So I'm Liz Stanton. I'm the director and senior economist at the Applied Economics Clinic. And we're a nonprofit consulting we work in the areas of uh, climate, environment, and equity, mostly on energy topics, but sometimes topics that are nearby to that. Uh, and our clients are, um, many of them are nonprofit advocacy groups. We also work for a number of different governmental agencies, and occasionally we'll take as a client someone who's a uh, renewables developer or someone in that space that's a, a private entity. Um, I've been doing this type of work for about 20 years. I've testified in many cases. Um, I have a PhD in economics and that's my main field, but uh, my interest and expertise have spread around that. Um, and I've had a lot of opportunity to work with both lawyers and clients in um, providing expert services. Great, thank you all. So we can start the conversation really high level. Um, just what is the role of an environmental consultant or 
a technical expert in your practice and and whoever wants to start with that can jump in. Um, I can I I can start. Um uh so like you said, Emily, at a really high level, uh I think that at least in my new new lawyer experience, I've worked with technical consultants. Um uh, it seems like in in three different roles. Uh first is uh, you know, in the kind of ongoing response action. This, in my experience, has really been for 21 e cases, but um I, I can I think I think that's not uncommon to work with experts in other cases where there's kind of an issue that is actively going. And so you're responding in real time. Uh the second bucket is a litigation expert. So something happened and you need an expert to go back through um, and testify or verify um, uh, certain things. And then finally, the last category, uh, which really is probably um, in, in kind of a, a more limited way, is um, an, an expert to verify the other expert for litigation purposes. Um, and, and this is really a purely uh, litigation expert um, who would go through both, um, uh, I think, a substance and time and, and um, you know, their role is limited to checking the other experts work, but verifying it. So again, to very simple, I would say it's just to parse out the science under the regulations and statutes, explain the terms and definitions and how they're applied. And, and it, it all, it, all of that falls into what, uh, what was just said as well, as far as countering other experts, but it really, the, 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 the bare bones of it is, is what I just said. It's like really parsing out the science of it, explaining it and applying it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I've worked in the, the various roles that um, Ali was describing, uh, definitely uh, parsing out the science. Um, a lot of the, the work that I end up doing in um, litigation is analysis. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's more descriptive and explanatory, helping people understand issues, uh, putting things in language that normal people can understand. But quite a bit is analysis. It's taking the, the facts on hand and making something new out of them that illuminates the discussion. Great. Thank you. So this next question um, might be a little more tailored to Ollie and Liz, but Bruce, you can sort of hop in uh, in a way that you can make it relevant. So when these relationships start between lawyers and consultants or technical experts, how um, how are these relationships formed? How are experts obtained? Liz, do you do? Um, how do you find your clients? Um, and how do those relationships begin? Oh, sorry. Um, so it's funny. I think it is actually not unlike any other professional relationship. Um, uh, you start to get to know people that you've worked with in your own cases. Um, the partners that you work with or work under have kind of their own list of technical experts that they've worked with in the past. 
Um, but, um, you know, it's things like seeing experts on that, um, other parties may have hired. And, you know, as time goes by, you, um, start to know the players, um, uh, in the expert field. Um, and, uh, and I think that when you have a particular matter, there's a little bit of a matchmaking service that you play between your consultant and, uh, your client and, or, um, the issue that you're trying to work on. Um, so that includes things like costs, but also um, what kind of problem you're trying to fix um, and uh, knowing the consultants and then knowing the problem, um, you can kind of arrive at um, a mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah, at, at DP, you know, we're, we're our technical experts our fellow employees, um, but be that as it may, I'm, I'm, you know, I think the main theme uh, uh, with with any expert is is relationship. What Ollie talked about, and I, you know, so even though I work there within the same agency, I may not have ever worked with them before. I, I wouldn't know if know them if I saw them walking down the hall. Um, so it's really important, you know, early on to establish a rapport, just getting to know each other a little bit. Obviously, with a with an out, outside consultant, you know, the, the clock is ticking even while you're establishing that rapport. So you have to keep that in mind. But relationships are real important. You know, we'll talk about that later, about the different language that people use. Um, but if you've established the rapport, the relationship, the trust and respect with each other, then it's going to be a lot easier down the road setting parameters and really gleaning from the expert what, what you want to get from them. Almost all of our clients um, from word of mouth or repeat clients. Um, you know, there's a small percentage that we have seen an RFP that looked really interesting and filled it out, but we're usually busy enough from all of the, the requests that we get just from word of mouth to not really have time for that. Um, and it takes a lot of time to fill out proposals and they're not always successful. So there's a cost-benefit analysis there of doing those. But usually, um, you know, we get a lot of repeat of, you know, folks that we've developed a relationship with and uh, are happy with our work and want us to keep doing the next case for them. And then, you know, people have heard of us from other, uh, you know, friends or colleagues have worked with us or, um, you know, there, there's also uh, having been another party to a docket that we were in and, and learning about us. Great. Thank you all. Um, so we are, since we are the new lawyers committee, um, our next question is, do you think that environmental consultants and technical experts are working more closely with junior lawyers or senior lawyers um, in either instance, what are sort of the pros of or and cons of, of those types of relationships? Um, so in my experience, it's typically, it typically is the more junior attorney. Um, I would say with the exception of um, 
if you're in litigation towards the when you're getting closer to trial, then the work shifts a little bit more towards um, the more senior attorney who will work with the expert, um, you know, in preparation for testimony and and whatnot like that. Um, Certainly on uh, response actions or um, uh, instances where there are, um, where there's an active problem, like I mentioned before, there's kind of the the different types of experts. Um, uh, And there's, you know, there can be day to day or week to week type issues that you need to address. Uh, That definitely is, um, in my experience with the uh, junior attorney, Um, you're often acting a little bit like the middle person, uh, the middleman between um, the consultant and um, uh, the more senior attorney and conveying messages back and forth and asking questions um, of both um, both people. Um, and I don't know, Liz can speak to whether that might be <laughs> the more streamlined um, uh, uh, way to go about things. Um, uh, but um, did you and did you ask about pros and cons or? Yeah, if you have yeah. any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think certainly, you know, one benefit of working closely um, with the consultants, you know, not only are you building a relationship for your own career down the line, but you get to know the case or the matter um, in a more technical way uh, than you would, um, you know, talking to someone on on the phone um, or Zoom and being able to ac- ask questions back and forth Uh helps you develop um, your knowledge of the issue in a way that you just really can't from reading reports or papers or or whatnot. Um, So there is a a dynamic um, relationship that develops that I think really um, can help uh, with the case. I think, you know, some of the the cons might be you don't always ask the right questions of the consultant and there's kind of a back and forth um, between um, uh, the attorney that you're working under who really knows exactly what uh, they want out of the cons- <laughs> uh, the consultant or want the consultant to do. Um, but I think that um, uh, is, is kind of a normal um, process uh, that probably happens a lot of in a lot of different situations. Liz, do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, it really depends. Um, you know, thinking about it, uh, there are cases that I've gotten involved in that have uh, a whole uh, team of lawyers working on them. And there are cases where it's just one lawyer who's trying to keep up with it all. Um, in the case where it's one lawyer, it's much more likely to be someone senior um, and somebody who might be volunteering their time or paid for a smaller environmental advocate helping them out. Um, uh, in cases where it's a whole team, that's more likely to be working for the consumer advocate or someone like that. And they've got five different experts and 10 different lawyers, you know, some inside and some outside that are working on it. Um, and in that case, uh, certain parts are handled by more junior lawyers and certain parts by more senior. I would say certainly like sort of working the way through discovery, um, changes that come up with um, the docket schedule and all of the ins and outs, that's more likely to be that kind of correspondence with, with someone more junior on the team. Um, 
It seems to me like it's been really important to have someone who's senior and experienced involved beginning to end in a case um, because that's the person that's more likely to be uh, the active participant in the hearing. And having developed a relationship with that person is important. So regardless of the seniority of the person that is acting in the hearing, it's important to, to develop that kind of relationship with them, to have them have been aware of all the steps that have gone along the way, um, and to, to have a little bit of sense of, of one another's personality. Um, I, I think that this is something that's um, is still true, but has changed in nature a bit with the movement, of, uh, perhaps temporary movement, of hearings to be online. Um, the, that uh, changes the nature of the, the relationship. Um, it changes how you prepare for a hearing. It changes um, the roles a little bit of what the 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 lawyer is doing in the hearing and the expert and how they interact. Um, and I don't know, it seems like more and more places are going back to being in person. And I have more experience doing that way where you're looking at somebody across the room and, you know, getting their, their signal as to what should be going on here, both in both directions. Um, it can be a little trickier to accomplish when you're online. Um, you know, maybe Massachusetts might be uh, one of the ones that seems to be sticking with uh, the online hearings where where other states have been returning. Um, and that's a little bit of a digression, but um, I think the the seniority helps with that developing a relationship and with the the experience of how to handle a hearing and how to actively participate and take care of a witness. In a Thank you, Liz. And that's really interesting about the in-person versus online sort of social cues and relationship building. Bruce, do you have anything to add from yeah. experience at DEP? Yeah, no, I would, I would say that's just an excellent point. I, I can tell you that DEP is now going back to in-person. Um, and we in the litigation group, you know, really prefer that. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I prefer the experience, but I'd rather stay home with my family and not travel. And I do work all over the country. So well, yeah, having well, it work remotely is wonderful. But the truth is that there's something in that that um, relationship and connection and seeing what's going on that works differently in an actual room of people. Yeah, well, and it cuts both ways. Not only is it more difficult to control your witness, which sometimes you, you know, with all due respect, Liz, <laughs> sometimes we need to rein our expert in. Um, but on the flip side of that is um, we don't have the benefit of seeing the whole person that we're cross-examining either. And again, you know, there's a lot of nonverbal cues uh, that you need the full body <laughs> Uh to read that. And also, um, you know, then you can, you also, if everybody's in person, you're able to sit back during direct and observe the interaction between the lawyer and that expert and notice anything that's going on there and 
you know, call it out if if need be. So yeah, in in person it is much better. And 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 again, I'll probably repeat this a bunch of times. That's why forming a good rapport and relationship with your expert is so important. Mm-hmm. So Bruce, following up off of what you just said about having to rein in experts, um, maybe <laughs> start with this one. What are some challenges that you have faced in the consultant lawyer relationship? It's, um, well, the challenge sometimes at DEP is the, well, a couple of things. There are technical witness is also our client, which is a little different uh, in other places. Um, And so part of that also means that our technical expert has been dealing with the other side from the beginning without the litigators being there, which is the way it should be. You know, if you're dealing with a with a permit, you know, or something like that, you need the DEP needs to be involved and, you know, to ask clarifying questions, to work with the attorney on the other side, an expert on the other side. Um, and then if that goes sideways, um, then then my group gets involved, the litigators, and our expert has been involved for a while. So they want to continue. Um, explaining, working with the other side. And then, so at that point, we have to shut them down because we're now in litigation, can't be talking to the other lawyer, can't be talking um, to the other people. So that's a big challenge. Uh, um, Simply to explaining to the expert, you know, now we're in litigation, so you have to act differently. Um, and that that can be very difficult because, like I said, their whole job is to work with people and try to come to some sort of a resolution. We're still doing that, but in a litigation setting, which, again, is, you know, becomes adversarial to some level. Um, the other challenge with any expert um, is they may have an idea in their head as to what they need to testify to, um, or they want to be conclusory on the legal side, um, which is not their job either. Um, They just need to explain the scientific. And then it's up to us as a litigator to argue the legal part of it and to apply what they've testified to and make the legal argument. so that that is um, that is the other challenge. Um, the other challenge with experts in general, which um, you know, sometimes you have an individual that has is an expert in their field, um, but has rarely, if ever, testified. Um, and so it's really important to find that out as well. Um, Ollie, I forget how you described it. Almost like a dating. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a matchmaking. Right. Get to know your expert. Um, So it's important to know that um, as well. But the big challenge is, you know, sometimes you have to explain to the expert what their role is and to keep them in that role and not to over explain. Um, And 
you know, just going through the whole process of only answer the question, you know, that's asked you. Don't, if, if I need clear, if I feel like I need clarification, I will ask for it or, you know, and redirect. We can clean it up if we need to. So. Great. Thank you. Alier was from, from either side challenges with this relationship. Um, with it, you go ahead. Uh, um, I'll just echo Bruce in that. I, I think that the testimonial aspect of that role can be challenging, um, particularly on um, cross-examination and, and um, what Bruce said about kind of coming in with um, like a preconceived notion of what you're supposed to be saying um, uh, and uh, sometimes fighting opposing counsel uh, can be, can be tricky. Um, uh, so uh, preparing um, your expert for uh, testimony um, uh, and, and kind of remembering where they're coming from, you know, we're, I'm assuming most people on this call are, are lawyers or, or working with lawyers um, or law students. And, you know, we have seen and understand the legal process, but um, for people that might not be as familiar with it, um, just remembering how, like how awkward sometimes cross-examination is or direct examination is. And like, why, you know, why you can't explain like that sucks um, sometimes. Um, uh, and so just, you know, preparing your witness, um, your expert for situations like that. Mm -hmm. um, we had these questions ahead of time and I was trying to think of how to, how to respond to them <laughs> um, from my point of view as a consultant. And certainly there are challenges. And of, of course, you can try to work on relationship building to, to make sure any of those challenges are better in the moment that they happen. Um, I thought of a couple of instances um, where I had a bad experience being somebody's consultant that I could speak to. And I think the other thing that might be of use or not is how I train people to be uh, consultants, and especially in the moment of um, testifying at a hearing, that moment. Um, so at least on the first part, the two kind of categories of bad experience that I thought of are, um, and really uh, for this first one, just one time I remember this happening where I was in a situation of being cross-examined and my lawyer was not prepared and not able to support me in that. And um, we were facing a, a very aggressive and hostile lawyer on the other side, somebody who worked for a utility um, and made a lot of money doing that. Uh, and um, the uh, the they were digging into questions that were around previous cases and around uh, uh, you know discovery and and but uh, in in previous cases that really weren't for me to answer um, and the lawyer wasn't able to step in and handle the situation and the whole thing kind of turned nasty and unfortunate. It was a bad experience. Um, uh, the other thing that I thought, so that's, that's in preparation, knowing it wasn't an experienced lawyer, um, that person should have had more backup from the folks that they were working with and shouldn't have been in that position either. So, um, but uh, being ready and knowing how to handle things that come up 
in a hearing where people are trying to be adversarial. So um, the other thing that I thought of was a, a couple of times I've run into lawyers or teams of lawyers where they I didn't feel like they respected my time or or me as a person in the sense of you know schedules change there's always something changing in these kinds of proceedings but usually ahead of time you talk us through and set out times when you're not available times when you might be going on vacation that kind of thing and so I have run in a couple of cases where then that wasn't respected and I ended up having to work for long periods while I was on vacation or take call after call after call in the time that I set out to be with my family. Um, and so I, I think that's another aspect of, um, you know, it's always last minute and it's always urgent, but people have lives and, and other responsibilities. And so you have to kind of work around that and make a plan for it and figure out a respectful way to, to handle it when everything goes wrong. Thanks. Um, so, Bruce, you sort of started touching on this earlier, but sometimes scientists or technical experts and lawyers are speaking sort of different languages. So, for example, terms of art can mean different things in the environmental context. Release comes to mind, other things like that that can mean very different things in different situations. Um, standards for certainty are different in the legal context versus the scientific context. Um, things like that. So how do you navigate these differences? Does anyone want to start? Bruce, you want to start? Yeah, yeah. I got a relationships report <laughs> is the is the the starting point. Um, you so there's a challenge for the lawyer too, where we you know we can't be speaking legalese to our witness either. Um, and so part of that, any sort of relationship or rapport goes both ways. So when you are explaining the process to the expert, when you are explaining what your expert expectations are of the expert, you need to speak in terms that they can understand. Um, and likewise, when the expert starts speaking, Technically, well, can you explain that? Can you break that down for me? Um, because when they're testifying, they're going to have to do that as well. And and the other thing you need to explain to an expert is, you know, you you want your expert to be the all knowing, all seeing witness, but in the same vein. Um, you don't want them to be a pompous ass. So you have to you 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 have to convey to them and and the way you can convey that to them is while you're having the conversation with them is having them break it down into terms that people can understand or you as the stupid lawyer can understand. Um, <laughs> but on on the other vein, I, I, I'm kidding when I say the stupid lawyer, but Again, in the relationships, you need to convey to them that you know what the heck you're doing um, and that they can they can trust you. Um, and you never want to end up with a situation that Liz had, um, you know, and you have to convey to them. And that part of when you're prepping them, 
you're going to play good lawyer, bad lawyer, um, and you're going to show them. And and sometimes that includes literally standing up and kind of getting in their face um, in your practice sessions to show them this could could this would be like the worst case scenario. But then conveying to them, if this happens, this is what I am going to do. I have your back. And I always I always joke with experts. I said, if all else fails, I'll feign a heart attack and that'll be the end of it. So um, but again, it you know, that's a nice breaker. <laughs> so, Liz, if I'd have been there, I would have been clutching my chest. And, uh... Perfect. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it's just a st- you have to establish rapport with your expert and then you then they're going to be comfortable with you and they can also explain to you in terms and you I mean you need to understand what the heck they're talking about when they're up there I mean and also the other reason you need to understand is because that's part of your case you know you so you you need to know what they're saying um and don't assume you know ask the questions yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I think that it's good to remember also who you are testifying to or in front of, right? And you know, often in cases that I'm working in, that's a utility commission. Sometimes it's another body that's similar, um, the citing board or, or what have you. Um, the folks that are on a utility commission are not energy experts. Um, that's not the background that they came from. Occasionally, they are more often in Massachusetts than in other places. Um, but very often, they are friends of the governor. That's who they are. Um, they don't have a background in this. If you don't break it down and make it in terms that a regular person can understand, they're not going to understand what you're talking about. And they might even feel uncomfortable or hostile about that and, and get a negative feeling from not understanding, which you absolutely don't want. So I, I think that that, um, you know, it's not just the, the terms and, and, and using different languages, but it's uh, making sure that you're, you're really breaking things down and, and talking about things in a normal way, using normal words. Um, I, I think there are contexts in which awing people, it, the, your technical language can work and get you somewhere. I don't think that's usually in a utility commission hearing where that's going to work. Yeah. And I would just add um, from the new lawyer perspective, don't be afraid to ask questions of your expert. Um, You it's not your job to look smart to your expert. Um, You know, if you don't understand something, ask them about it because it will help your case and it will help the senior partner or, or a senior attorney that you're um, uh, working under. I think also developing that deep understanding as much as you can of the technical details of the case is what's going to make it possible for a lawyer to effectively question a witness. Um, and um, it's what makes it possible for me as a witness to run to a lawyer is when they don't actually understand, you know, they have a list of questions in front of them. They don't understand their list. 
Thank you. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about was handling the scope of work when working with a consultant, um, particularly in private practice where your consultants are being paid um, and, and you want to be respecting their timelines and boundaries. So what lessons have you learned in sort of setting these expectations and guideposts for navigating work? So I think probably the most, um, the biggest lesson that I've learned is the most efficient way you can respect people's times and boundaries is have a weekly check-in meeting. Um, that way, when things come out up during the week, unless they're super urgent, you can just address everything in an hour, um, you know, on a Thursday, um, and rather than having constant emails back and forth. What about this issue? What about this issue? What about it, this issue? Um, you know, it, it seems like a simple solution, but it really can be quite effective. Um, and it also keeps people on track with uh, things that um, they've promised to each other. Uh, you know, it's kind of that internal deadline that we all need a lot of times um, to keep things moving forward. Yeah, just having a, sorry, Liz. Yeah, just scheduling the meeting, you know, as a, as opposed to randomly. And, and yeah, like Ollie said, be, if you need to email, be selective. Don't pepper them with a bunch of them, you know, bundle it together or hold off until you have your, your scheduled meeting. I think that setting expectations is so important to making the whole relationship work in a couple different ways. Um, one is this kind of the uh, the timing and the daily needs and all that. I think a weekly meeting or a bi-weekly meeting is a really good solution to that. It helps keep everything going smoothly in a way that just email correspondence can't. Um, I think it's important to remember in that that um, even if somebody's a, an experienced uh, witness, experienced expert, the folks that they've worked with have really different expectations. Um, I find that there isn't consistency across my various clients' uh, expectations. And so I might think something is perfectly normal and have one idea of it, and they have a, another perfectly reasonable idea. So spelling everything out is really important. I think just as a simple example, I've got clients that think that being on time is having a draft done three or four weeks before the deadline. And I have clients that I'm going back and forth with that night because they're last night people. I don't like last night people. Um, I want it to be, I'm more like that week. Let's get it done and closed out that week. But definitely I work with people that if we're not, we don't have a draft, it's complete beginning to end draft three weeks ahead of time, then they feel like they're behind, right? And you can't know who you're dealing with unless you talk through these details and make it clear. You can't just assume um, one thing or another thing or, or um, that you know how that's gonna go. I think another thing that's really important about expectations is in what a testimony is going to include uh, what, what the parameters are of it to really spell that out. Um, one, uh, one issue with that, that in all of our work, not just testimony, any kind of, um, analysis work that we do, especially is, it's important to set expectations in terms of 
what it is that we, the experts, are doing. And I think that one of the places where there's confusion about that or um, it's easy to get the wrong idea about is that what we do is answer questions. We're not here to be told a result and then support that result. And so because our job is to answer questions, when we do that, when we do research and analysis, we not, may not come up with the answer that you want. So we should definitely figure that out well before we're uh, submitting testimonies. Um, but but that's how that goes. That that's what we're doing. You know, where we need to to do research and analysis that we can support and have confidence in. And so we can't just develop a case for a finding. Um, and if somebody's doing it that way, they're doing it wrong. Thank you. So sort of related to that. So when you do have sort of an answer that your client doesn't like, um, how do you deal with concerns about information becoming available through either a discovery process or in the public sector through information requests um, and, and dealing with answers that you don't want broadcasted? That's always a concern. I mean, especially when we're working for uh, a client that's a public entity. Um, and, uh, you know, we can try to take all the precautions we can uh, to keep things confidential. But the truth is that your written words, emails, drafts, what have you, in a lot of cases, they could be requested, right? They could be made public. It's always possible. Um, and um, I've definitely had things requested either in the docket or through FOIA that then became available and that there's nothing you can do about that. And I think they must teach this in lawyer school, you know, don't write it down if you don't want somebody to see it. Yeah, I was going to say, um, <laughs> there's really bad news. <laughs> I want a phone call. I just want an email that says, call me at four. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, I'll process, process the, the, the news, but, um, yeah. Bruce, anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Well, as a government agency, I mean, we're subject to the public records law minus any exemptions that, that might be out there, which could be work product attorney client, um, trade secrets, um, thing, or if it's open litigation at, at the time, although once it's resolved, then that that goes away. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, again, as a government agency, you know, we're supposed to be uh, transparent, but certainly there's something to be said for the telephone. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes. <laughs> the bad news on the <laughs> phone call is a good idea. Um, so we have a question in the chat that says, you typically engage consultants as consulting experts in, in anticipation of litigation as a matter of course or wait until there's actual litigation going on. Um, and this sort of relates to a question that I had, was, which was if you have a, an expert as a matter of course, how does this relationship change and evolve over the course of an investigation, administrative action versus potentially a DP's case? Um, a settlement negotiation, and then eventually potentially active litigation. 
So sort of a two-part question, when do you engage your experts? And maybe it's different for the different roles the experts are playing and how does that relationship evolve? I think that then, I mean, we, we wouldn't get hired before there was something to get hired for. So if, if there's, we're not gonna get hired as an expert until there's a, a case to testify in. Definitely I have relationships with some clients where I'm supporting them across a number of different dockets or I'm supporting them in a matter that isn't about immediate litigation. There's gonna be a long process of stakeholder meetings and technical meetings and so forth. But somebody somewhere issued an order <laughs> saying that this was necessary. And, and until that happens, nobody's gonna hire me. Yeah, I think um, just trying to think through the cases that I've worked on and almost all the experts were engaged <clears throat> before there was actual litigation, but there was always um, a knowing that the expert was being engaged in an adversarial role. That is, you know, there there was a position, you know, I mean, I guess similar to Liz, like I don't get hired unless there's a reason either. <laughs> um, uh, so um, uh, whether or not it's litigation, there's generally um, a particular point of view uh, that you're coming from with with um, both your legal team and your expert team. So, Bruce, your experts will have been there the whole time. So how does that relationship evolve as you as things sort of look like they're going towards litigation? It, well, like, I, you know, as I said earlier, for the most part, you know, the expert, are, they're going to have full reign, you know, and open communication um, with the other side, um, you know, fortunately, um, if they aren't sure of the the position that we're taking or what's being presented to them on the other side, then they will they will consult with um, either the subject matter lawyers within the agency um, or they will also include the litigation team as well um, for us to strategize on what we think is is the best uh, position uh, to take in a particular matter. Um, and, and as I said earlier, you know, obviously once um, once an appeal is filed and litigation is actually in place, then it becomes a very different role where, yeah, you can't be talking to the other side. You can only talk with us um, and um, working on their testimony at that point. Great, thank you. Um, so we have about 10 minutes left. So if anyone has any questions, feel free to, to put them in the chat and we can get to them. Um, so sort of like an overarching concluding question, what are some of the key lessons that you've learned in working with environmental consultants and technical experts that could benefit new lawyers? I know we've talked a lot about relationship building and communication, any other sort of key lessons you would add to that? Um, well, I'll just note that on my little notes to myself, um, <laughs> I think I have two points that have um, 
come come about as themes through all of our answers, which is be nice um, and don't be afraid to ask um, questions to explain. Um, but be nice. You know, these people are on your side. Um, it's it really, really helps to have a um, a good relationship with your expert, um, you know, and it just makes work that much more enjoyable. Yeah. Experts are people too. So, (laughs) so listen to them. Um, Yeah. Respect them. They'll respect you. You it's real important, you know, not only with the rapport, but they, they need to be comfortable with you too. They need to trust you that again, they're not going to have that ugly incident that, that Liz had to experience. Um, They really need to know that you're in their corner and that, um, you know, the legal side of it, you know, and that you can control it. And so you need to explain to them how the process will work. You need to explain to them worst case scenario. You need to explain to them what your expectation is, what you, what you, what you need them to testify to and what, what you don't need or want them to testify to. Um, They're really smart people embrace that um it's it's a lot of fun dealing with technical experts and scientists and environmental analysts that know a heck of a lot more than you um and so part of that whole rapport and relationship building is to learn a thing or two um and it's a lot of fun thanks that's what we have a couple more minutes so I could ask a couple follow-up questions. Um, so one thing I'm wondering is how often does the quality of the consultant's work or the expert testimony determine the outcome of a case in your experiences? I At, at DEP, I'd say a lot. I mean, that you have to, both sides have to have experts. Um, so yeah, the expert testimony is, is, is key to the whole case. Um, yeah. And one thing we haven't talked, well, I guess we've touched upon it, um, is, is not only the strength of your expert in, in what you want, what in your case in chief, but it's also how your expert can help you, um, uh, cross-examine, the other side's expert. Sometimes that can be just as valuable or if not more valuable um, in a case. Do you want to elaborate on that or explain like a situation where you saw that play out? I kind of think. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Pre-COVID, I had an administrative action before DEP, and we, you know, both sides had both sides had um, experts. Uh, it was a close, it was a close call. The issue um, as to what they were testifying to, and our expert was able to help the senior attorney that I was working with um, go through the report of the opposing expert and um, kind of undermine her credibility on cross-examination. And I don't mean that in a, 
a, a mean way, but just um, really poke holes in some of the assertions that she had made in her report. And that sticks out more as a, a, a scoring points for your team than necessarily her direct, um, you know, what she was saying on direct um, uh, did. Anything to add, Liz? Um, no, I, I think that's a that's a better question for them than for me, probably. Something I was going to mention on the previous question, um, a kind of um, a boundary that we haven't talked about is that um, your experts can only testify about the things that they can testify about, mm. and that isn't everything. And I think it's really important to have clarity about them and your expectations about that. That that's something I'm always looking for as I'm writing testimony is to make sure I'm staying within the bounds of my expertise. I it doesn't help anybody um, to have me drift outside of that um, because it's going to be a problem on cross examination, right? Um, so I, I think that's something to to be aware of, and and also to respect when when an expert says, "Nope, can't testify to that, can't do it." Um, that that there are good reasons why not to to step too far from the things that you really have expertise in. Great, thank you. Does anyone have any final thoughts, or do we have any any last questions from the chat? Um, I think this was a really productive conversation and I want to thank all of our panelists for joining. Um, really appreciate you taking the time and having this conversation with us. Noel, do you, you want to say anything before we sign off for the BBA? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to jump in and say a quick thank you to all of our panelists uh, and to you, Emily, as our moderator, uh, as well as all the attendees today. Thank you guys for taking the time to uh, to join us. And uh, everyone have a great rest of your week. Thanks. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.